Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We have had a lot of shows about political anger. We even had a show featuring Eric Lonergan, the author of Angrynomics. Um, And a continual feature in our conversation has been this addiction to politics and the anger that politics seems to engender both on the left and the right. So there's a new book out about this political anger and this obsession with politics. It's appropriately called Political Junkies, and uh, its author is Claire Bond-Potter, who teaches uh, at the New School in New York City. She's actually talking to me uh, from her hiding spot, although it's less of a hiding spot now that I've announced it to all you political junkies out there in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, Claire, let's kick off by defining what you mean by political junkies. It's a very good history of our obsession with politics, and you, you call it political junkies. Yeah, well, the phrase political junkie was first coined by Hunter Thompson, Uh, in 1972, when he was covering the George McGovern campaign. And of course, Thompson was overly familiar um, with various kinds of intoxicants, um, had done practically every drug around. And at a certain point in the campaign, and you know, Thompson found himself in the middle of this political campaign working for Rolling Stone, and it wasn't really his thing. I mean, he had done the Hell's Angels. He had, you know, he'd done a variety of very countercultural things. And all of a sudden, he's in the heart of the establishment. And he wakes up one day and finds out that he is hooked on politics. And he writes this whole thing at the beginning of the book in which he says that it's, it's a thrill. It's a, it's a craving for more, even, you, even though you know that this thing you're doing is terrible and that it's killing you, you want more and more of it. And he says, you know, I've become a political junkie. And journalists pick up on this phrase and begin to describe themselves as political junkies. And you begin to see journalists saying, you know, this is the the ultimate in being a kind of pop culture figure in reporting is to be able to express through my work a need and a desire for politics that is so overwhelming. And so one of the reasons I used that phrase as the title of the book was to express an involvement, not just with politics, but with political media that keeps pulling us in over and over and over again that culminates in social media, um, which all kinds of people like Jerron Lanier have argued is actually engineered to addict us to their platforms. Yeah, and I think one of the great things about your book is it doesn't begin with with my friend Jerron Lanier's analysis of the digital revolution. It begins way before that. It begins, as you say, with Hunter Thompson and with talking radio. Um, what's so intoxicating, Claire, about politics. It's always seemed to me, especially the 
inside the Beltway version of politics, this always seemed to me to be actually rather boring. Well, I think it, it depends um, what your bent is. I think one of the things that's intoxicating about politics is that it was reality TV before there was reality TV. So that when, for example, you put a political convention on television or there were shows like Firing Line with William F. Buckley and you never really knew what was going to happen. Um, whereas much of television was very predictable, um, very mm. establishment oriented, very anodyne. You had things happening in political conventions. I mean, there, there was one year in which Nelson Rockefeller, I believe it was 1968, he wades into the crowd of delegates in the middle of this convention that is erupting and gives the finger uh, to the Texas delegation, <laughs> you know, and that was right on national television. Or you had Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley having a knockdown drag out fight um, in which William F. Buckley calls Gore Vidal a fag and Gore Vidal calls William F. Buckley a fascist and, and so on. So um, politics created a kind of live television vibe um, long before we had endless numbers of shows about remodeling your house or embarrassing your husband or whatever it is that people like to watch nowadays. So are you suggesting, Claire, that, that the, the intoxicating nature of, of politics is bound up with our desire for authenticity? Because a lot of books have been written on that too. I think that's right, but I think it's an interesting paradox because of course we continue seeking authenticity from politics while politics says to us over and over again, there's nothing authentic about this. Um, mm. And you know, that really peaks in the 2016 campaign where you know, what people say about Hillary Clinton over and over again is she's not authentic, she's not authentic. And Hillary Clinton is constantly reaching out on all these forms of, uh, of social media to try to show how authentic she can be. And then on the flip side, you've got Donald Trump who is acting all the time, but who see, seems so much more authentic than any regular politician because he's constantly saying bizarre and offensive things. Um, and, you know, over three years into the Donald Trump's presidency, we've gotten kind of sick of it. But it's hard to overestimate how much in 2015 people followed the news just to see what Donald Trump was going to do next. Yeah, Claire, you're a, you're a historian of political theory. I'm always looking for people to blame for this, particularly French, <laughs> particularly French people who I'm not too keen on. So can we blame all this on Rousseau when it comes to the history of political theory and this endless obsession with authenticity? And as you suggest, anyone who even mentions the word authenticity or behaves as if they are authentic are by definition inauthentic. I always think of Arianna Huffington in that sense. She, she built her career and her tens of millions of dollars on her own inauthenticity. Absolutely. Well, I think we could certainly blame this on Rousseau. I think we could also point out, actually, that the French Revolution was the first truly theatrical revolution in the world. Um, that it was staged on the streets, that it was, um, it was obsessed with ritual, with theatricality, with song, with costume, 
and so on. And so actually, if we are going to blame this on the French, one of the things we might argue is that the French created a form of populist politics that, that reached out broadly to people of every station long before they were able to broadcast it. But, but they did in fact do the French Revolution as the Americans did their own revolution through a kind of alternative media, which was pamphleteering. Um, it's important to remember in the 18th century, all media belonged to the king. Disrupting that, creating other forms of media was inherently revolutionary because you were challenging the voice of the monarch. Um, so really, yes, alternative media, we can blame it all on the French. I'm with you. <laughs> Your book is um, unusually, in, in, in our age of enormous divisions between left and right, your book is unusually, I think, fair both to left and right. And, and as you suggested to me in our conversation before the interview, um, it's, it's uh, eliciting unusually warm reaction both from left and right. But what about when it comes to democracy, uh, Claire, and our, our, our dissent, if that's the right word, into becoming political junkies? Uh, you mentioned this opposition to the establishment and this love of theater and of rewriting politics as this endless narrative as reality television. In today's Atlantic, there's a really nice piece from Am Anne Applebaum mm. about the way in which uh, Putin has become a master of political narrative, of inventing and reinventing political narrative. And what's happening now in places like Portland in the US is taken right out of Putin's playbook. So my, my rather long-winded point or question here is that this tendency towards theater, theater and narrative in our culture of political junkies isn't necessarily kind to democracy. And in your book, the, the subtitle suggests that our, that our democracy is actually broken. Yeah, you know, it isn't kind to democracy and it, it is also deceptive at this point. I mean, remember the book begins with a guy named I.F. Stone who Izzy is Stone. Izzy Stone, who is a, a hero to a whole generation of journalists who come after him. But, but what Izzy Stone figures out, you know, Izzy Stone um, loses his last job with the last progressive newspaper in New York. He can't get a new job because of the McCarthy era. And so he decides to do a four page newsletter and he figures out if enough people give him $5, you know, he needs something like 10,000 people to give him $5. And if that happens, he can continue to exist. He can continue to do his work. But what he promises his readers is one story every week. This, one, is, Andrew, this is Andrew Sullivan 1.0, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, what Izzy Stone's um, granddaughter says is, you know, he was the first blogger. Right. So he offers people one story that is very deeply researched every week. And what he can guarantee to them is that it will be true. OK, if you fast forward um, to 2016 or 2020, what we have is a great deal of alternative media that looks true, but isn't is able to simulate news, but it really isn't news um, and that can be easily by any amateur. Um, be cut, um, remixed, um, you know, and into something that looks like a news item when it's actually false. So we're in this very weird period 
where actually people are creating news. Um, for example, the murder of George Floyd um, in Minneapolis um, produced a now familiar phenomenon where somebody taped it on a cell phone and was able to broadcast it, was able to get the message out unmediated. That's real news. Um, but there are also tons of people who are putting things out. There was one I saw just today that was supposedly about an Antifa pulling a handgun on a guy in a car who then pulled a handgun on him. And so yeah. it appears to be a video of these two guys pointing guns at each other. You don't have to look at it too long to figure out the whole thing is fake. Um, however, a lot of people don't look at social media very long. So this was zipping around the internet as evidence um, that there were Antifa in Portland who are fully armed and ready to kill people, right? So, so look at that juxtaposition, right? You go from alternative media being something that is truer than what people are going to see in the news because it has an ideological perspective and it's well-researched. Fast forward 70 years and we're looking at things that because they're produced so fast, Everybody assumes their news, but you have to work really hard to figure out what's true and what isn't true. But my question, Claire, was about democracy. Why is that bad for democracy? Is it because we no longer share ontologies? Is it because our different versions of truth have become so separate, so dis disconnected, that no one can even agree on a common platform, which essentially undermines the working of democracy? Yes, I think that's true. I think what is also true is that alternative media platforms have worked very, very hard to segment their own audiences and to bring their audiences into their version of reality. Um, what that means is that all platforms are viewed through an ideological lens now. And if somebody does not share your ideology, they don't share your truth either. Even mine, Claire, what am I, left or right? <laughs> Even yours. <laughs> what's, what's my uh, bias? Well, you know, I would say we probably all have a bias, but some of us have an expansive view of other people's truths as well. Um, and one of the things that's very unusual nowadays is for people to actively seek out ideological perspectives that are not their own. Um, and it's very easy to not do that because actually we're inundated. Um, both with establishment media and with alternative media. We are wading through a sea of media every day. Um, and so to actually find a way of sorting that and saying, okay, I'm going to go look at the National Review and see what they have to say, or I'm going to go read the Wall Street Journal opinion page and see what they have to say. And you may read it and say, well, that's claptrap. But you actually have to read it and engage it. Um, and I think what what the point you're making about democracy is really mine, that we have become a fragmented country um, that no longer, it's not just that we don't share a common set of facts, we don't share a common set of positions about what constitutes a fact. What about sports, um, Claire? I, I'm not sure if you're a sports fan, but it seems to me that there isn't really that much of a difference between political junkies and sports junkies. And that maybe it's America, maybe it's the nature of, of life in the early part of the 21st century, but everything has essentially been reduced to sports. And we've all become partisans of our own particular 
team. Now, whether we blame that on sports or politics is another question, but has there been this collapse of the sporting and the political world? Um, I think that, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. I had never thought about that before, but you know, one of the things I'm always amazed about when I'm driving around in the car is if you get on one of those all sports channels, yeah. there are men all over the place who know the most minute details, say, about the New England Patriots and can, can recite endless amounts of data about why some draft pick is going to succeed or not going to succeed, right. why that was a stupid choice and so on. Yeah. And you think, you know, if only these people were actually engaged in politics, we might be getting somewhere. Um, so, yes, there is a parallel, the sports junkie and the political junkie um, feeding themselves endless amounts of information and being in conversation about that information is extraordinarily important to them. And this is where I think alternative media really played a huge role in politics, really beginning with the bulletin board systems of the 1980s and 1990s, which is there was this potential for an expanded democracy because these services allowed us to expand conversation. What we didn't know is that when we hit the social media apps of 2006 and after, that the ways that these apps were designed would actually separate us, um, would separate what we were able to see, would separate the people we had conversations with. And then when those lines crossed and we ended up clashing with people, um, we would be shocked to learn that we were operating from two different sets of facts. But that is, in fact, how these platforms are engineered. Um, and Jaron Lanier, who we were talking about earlier, would argue that actually they are engineered to make us angry and depressed because the angrier we are and the more depressed we are, the stickier we are <laughs> on these platforms. Um, whereas if you look at earlier alternative media, their goal was not to whip up our emotions and our feelings. Their goal was to inform. And that was true on the left and on the right. Which was, of course, at least better, I think, for democracy. Uh, Claire, I tried earlier, probably without much success, to blame all this on a French-Swiss political theorist who, of course, <laughs> was male. You took this one step further and half blamed everything on male sports fans. But what worries me, and you're a feminist scholar, so you, you, can, you can comment on this, is women, it seem to be just as guilty as this political junkiedom as men. Yeah. Well, why yeah. are women falling for this? Aren't they smarter than men on, on, on most things? Well, well, I'd like to think that, that women are smarter than men, but what I, what I would also say about alternative media is it opens the door to outsiders. So that one of the things you see in conservative alternative media, for example, is that the vast majority of voices are men until the early 1990s, with the sole exception, really, of Phyllis Schlafly and, and a couple of other women who sort of take up an anti-feminist woman's position. Um, and I, I won't make any jokes about whether or not Phyllis Schlafly is an, actually a woman, but that's... <laughs> there you I go. Shouldn't, I shouldn't say that publicly, but go on. <laughs> Um, but by the 1990s, um, what you have is conservative donors who are sort of salting campuses um, with money uh, to create conservative publications on campuses and, you know, with this same, the same problem that they're identifying that the campus media is much too liberal, so you need a conservative media, blah, blah, blah. And what you find is young women 
um, flocking to these publications because they can actually get in the door. I mean, in part, it's because they're conservative, but in, in part, it's because they can get in the door. And then as conservative media starts opening up in the 1990s with new cable shows, with new magazines, with the internet and so on, you have people like Ann Coulter um, and, uh, you know, uh, who, who actually, there's an opening for it, Michelle Malkin. Um, so what you're suggesting, Claire, is that we should, again, so to speak, embrace the blondes on Fox Media there more democratic uh, and more sympathetic to critiques of the establishment than, than, than progressives should like these blondes on Fox Media. Well, you know what they are is populists. Um, and that's actually a really important part of the formula. And the question of whether populism, populism is an extraordinarily radical um, mass crowd-based version of democracy. Um, populism is not democracy as John Stuart Mill imagined it. It's not even democracy as Franklin Delano Roosevelt imagined it. Um, it is a radical form of inclusion by which the will of the people is piped upward to politicians. Um, an argument could be made um, that women are particularly good at reading the crowd um, and and consolidating those messages. Um, what I would really argue about Fox News is that Roger Ailes figured out that lots of pretty blonde um, opinion journalists were really good for marketing. Um, and as we know from some of the things that have been written about Roger Ailes, um, he was able to broaden the appeal of right-wing populism by piping it through um, various kinds of uh, female newscasters. When I was reading your book, Claire, I came across PBS NewsHour, which always seemed to me, to, today at least, to be the epitome of the news establishment. But you yeah. remind us in your, in your excellent book that, um, that it began also as alternative media. Is all this cyclical? In 20 years, are we going to be thinking of what you call the political junkies, this alternative political universe? Will they become the establishment? And will all this play out time and time again in terms of this uh, reaction and counter-reaction between uh, the establishment and populism? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great question. And one of, the, one of the answers to that is I like to separate the establishment from the corporate. Um, because if you look, for example, at Breitbart, um, Breitbart is, by definition, a corporate news outlet, but it's not an establishment news outlet because it is both fighting the liberal establishment, the Washington establishment, but it's also fighting the establishment in the Republican Party. Um, and so alternative media is not necessarily um, poor. It's not necessarily non-profitable. Um, one of the most valuable media properties there is, is the Drudge Report, um, in part because the guy runs it on a shoestring, but in part because he has such a vast audience um, for what he aggregates. And he but, survived. I mean, it's incredible how he yeah. survived and prospered. Yes, he has. Well, and, and when you think about Matt Drudge, who began that platform on a computer that his father bought him um, because, you know, his father was worried that Drudge was just sort of like 
frittering his life away. And so he says, you know, anything to inspire my son. And he drives him to Radio Shack and buys him a computer and says, do something, you know. And what Drudge figures out is that there's all of the stuff in the trash at CBS, which is where he works. He works in the gift shop and he, he hangs out until everybody goes home and then he goes through the offices and he goes through their trash cans to figure out what shows are going to be coming up, who's getting hired, blah, blah, blah. There's all this information and he starts a newsletter with it. And so what Drudge has managed to do is something actually quite unusual in the alternative media establishment, which is he has remained himself. Authenticity. Um, authenticity, exactly. And exactly. so we keep on coming back to authenticity, blame Rousseau for that, and we keep on coming back to newsletters. Uh, Claire Bond Potter, uh, excellent book, Political Junkies. It's just out. Everyone should read that. I'm struck by um, how cheerful you are, given you've spent the last few years studying <laughs> and reading about political junkies. It hasn't warped you, corroded you in any way. I don't know how you maintain your cheerfulness. Perhaps you're addicted to something else. Uh, but what else should people be reading? What are you reading uh, in, in your lockdown in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, that's so keeping you so cheerful? <laughs> so I just read a terrific book, which I did not expect to love, um, by Ted Widmer. It's called Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. And you might be asking yourself, who needs another book about Lincoln? I certainly haven't read a book about Lincoln since I was in graduate school. And not only is this one of the best written books I've ever read, it is panoramic, it is like watching a movie, but it's a parallel to our time because it is about Lincoln being elected and the states, the southern states, starting to secede um, at the moment that he's elected and the nation pulling apart. And Lincoln has to get to Washington safely in order to assume the presidency before southerners take over Washington and, and conduct a political coup. Um, and, it, you know, it's a fascinating book because it sort of plays right into what we know about our moment, which is everybody is very, very unsure that Donald Trump and his cronies will actually leave Washington if they lose the election. Um, so it, there's an eerie parallel, um, but it's also a beautifully written book that shows a nation, a nation in collapse um, and one man um, going to Washington to try and save it. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.